Welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. everybody, welcome in. It's David Summers hosting another studcast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. And this is the only podcast on the planet which is documenting the real story of professional wrestling. Here we go with 100 years of rich wrestling history as told by the stud. Please welcome the originator of the studcast and the man who changed the podcasting world with the super studcast. We step back into the ring and back into time with the man, the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller is with us this afternoon. And, Ron, congratulations are in order. Last week was absolutely epic. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you, man. Uh, yeah, you know, we, we get numbers here. And uh, and uh, last week was a record show for us. Of Out of 169 episodes, it was the largest uh, we've done so far. And uh, I'm really, really happy about that. And I'm so glad to have the fans that are joining us. Well, I got a lot of new fans, obviously, for that to be happening. And, and yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's really a nice thing to have happen. And I really appreciate it. I guess we kind of built the Terry Funk match to make it something special. And, and uh, we've got some extra people joining us. And I just want to keep them on here, man. I just, just keep them interested and, uh, and keep doing what we're doing. And, I'm enjoying it, and obviously, I guess there's a lot of fans out there around the world that are into it as well. Well, there's a reason they call you the storyteller, and listen, episode number 169, can you believe that in and of itself? World Title Day Part 2, the biggest stud cast yet. It broke the all-time record, as you said, after 168 stud cast over a period of three years and 12 weeks. That is pretty awesome right there. I, I can't believe this has been going on that long and you're still knocking out these stories. Yeah, yeah, I can't either, man. Uh, and it's uh, it's it's pretty amazing. And uh, and it's a lot of fun. I actually enjoy it. And and, uh, you know, we're going to we're going to have a nice little ride here today. Uh, we're going to continue on. Uh, the funk deal was really something that world championship event. But uh, we're. We're going to have some other great events. Uh, things are just going to keep growing as Southeastern keeps growing. Uh, the Studcast is going to keep growing as well because we're we're basically telling the story. And uh, the story gets better and better as it goes. So it's a good deal. No doubt. Thanks again to Studcast fans. You're the ones that made it happen. All right, Stud, where are we riding to today? Well, as a tribute to that record breaker, that studcast number 169, I kind of handpicked uh, today's training 
we're going to do it uh, as we have been going back to the exact format that we've been having. And I handpicked the learning tree question. And both of those questions today and, and uh, the learning tree and the training comes out of that October 10th, 1976 afternoon event, me and Terry Funk. So we're going to begin this one with another one of the today's training, the show. And this time we're going to be wearing our wrestler hats. So this wouldn't everybody get your wrestler hat on because we're going to discuss injuries and how they affect not just the wrestler and his family, but bookers, owners, and fans. Even fans get affected by injuries, in my opinion. So then we're also going to return to Chill Alley Park on Friday night, October 22nd, 1976, 12 days after this world championship match between Terry Funk and I and the day I got hurt. And we're going to talk about that card and a major change again in talent. The Southeastern's going to move toward 1977. We're going to focus on Ronnie Garvin, how he's getting over, and a literally big change in his manager's coming. Also, we're going to talk about some about my brother who's stepping in for me during the time that I'm hurt here. Mm-hmm. So then we'll discuss the uh, Friday, October 22nd, 1976 card, and the results of that card. We're going to be highlighting that interview we talked about in the last program after the match was over where Terry Funk and Ronnie Garvin went back to his dressing room, to Funk's dressing room, and they shot a video right there in the dressing room. So we're going to be talking about that in today's program, especially when we get to the TV. Now, obviously, that promo, and it's basically a promo for Ronnie Garvin, is in that uh, show of October 16th, that Saturday. And then we're going to finish with the learning tree. We've got many questions. Obviously, there's been it's just been amazing the response I had, not just the people that were listening, the number, but the questions. So we're going to answer a couple of questions today. It came from someone about the Terry Funk match and I. And uh, our question today is going to come from a gentleman named Fred Edelman. And he asked, did the NWA send in referees for the title match or were they the refs that I was using pretty much full time? And uh, how much did champions say the champions have in the finish world champions? So two darn good questions. It should be a good one, Dave. I'm looking forward to it, man. No doubt about it. All right. So I guess we're going to start off with today's training. Let's get right to it. Okay. We're going to talk about wrestler injuries and, and just how many people were, and, and they still are, uh, directly affected by wrestler injuries. Thank goodness there are not a lot more of them, or there weren't a lot more of them back in the day in the sport. But when they recurred, it really shook up everyone, you know, from the wrestler and his family, obviously, to other wrestlers. It affected bookers, it affected owners of companies, and even affected the fans that uh, saw it happen. So in today's training, we're also going to take an inside look at the good and the bad things that arose out of injuries. Actually, there are a couple of fairly good things that happens when somebody gets hurt. So I don't know a better example for an injury on today's training than the match I described in last week's NWA World Title Day. October 10th, my match with Terry Funk. Obviously, it ended with someone legitimately hurt, and I was the one injured, and and that was fine with me because I would much rather it be me than any of my wrestlers. Uh, I really love my wrestlers and and the guys that, uh, that worked for me and with me 
I didn't never want to see them hurt. And uh, so if somebody gets hurt in the cart, I would always want it to be me. So let's look first at one of the bad things that injuries brought. You know, how these injuries affect wrestlers' families. And I was single at that point in 1976. I was paying about 1500 a month in child support and alimony. Wow. Uh, yeah. You know, and that's, I don't have that figure for 1976, but I got a feeling that's probably five or $6,000, you know, and it was a pretty steep hill to climb every month. Mm-hmm. And, but, uh, you know, luckily I wasn't married at this point. And, uh, you know, I didn't have a wife who was worrying about me getting hurt. And uh, thankfully, my two young sons, uh, they were living well. And they weren't there that day, thankfully, at the Coliseum in 1976. So it would have been an extremely traumatic experience for them, seeing me passed up through the crowd to get me into an ambulance. I can't imagine what, what that would have been like for them. So it was bad enough watching them just trying to adjust to me after this injury. Uh, on the weekends, uh, guys, I had my boys on the weekend myself, and uh, we had a great time together. And and but they they had a hard time adjusting to seeing me hurt even on the weekends for for about a month there. So we were at least eating well. We were we were doing pretty good, and uh, and I I was going to get well, and that was what the important part were. Now injuries for wrestlers in most territories it meant hard times for wrestlers and their family, wrestlers' jobs. Uh, and I don't know that people, I'm sure most people don't know this. Uh, wrestlers were described as independent contractors, which meant that you got a 1099 tax form at the end of the year from the wrestling companies that you'd work for to tell you what you had made. And you were responsible for paying your own income tax. Now, they didn't get tax deducted automatically every paycheck like most people do. And when they got hurt, some territories paid for all of their injuries. Some of them paid for a piece of it or some of it, and quite a few of them didn't pay anything if you were hurt as a wrestler. It was just too bad, you know. And in the case of Joe LaDuke's injury in 1977, which we had talked about, the blockbusting incident, <laughs> uh, I paid for all of Joe's expenses. And, uh, you know, and, and I always tried my best to make it easy as possible for guys when they got hurt in my territory. And I tried to help them as much as I could. Another bad thing about injuries, they required you to take a lot more responsibility for yourself and your family, not only your income, but especially with your health. Another thing fans probably don't know is wrestlers could not get health insurance. Wow. You know, the crazy part about that is, is for a sport that was, even back in those days, not considered real. Right. uh, the insurance companies recognized just how real it was mm-hmm. <laughs> and how often wrestlers were legitimately hurt. They saw you coming off the top rope. Yep. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. And they, and they, you know, when, uh, when they ask you what you did and you said, I'm a professional wrestler, <laughs> right? Uh, you never got the yes word when it came to insurance. It's like, Oh, no way. We don't touch you, man. Wow. So, uh, that's why they always turned you down. Uh, because there were a lot of legitimate injuries, and they they found your that it it was really tough wrestling injuries, and when you got hurt, it usually required a a pretty long recovery time as well. So let's talk about the good side of the injuries. Oddly enough, and uh, and if there is a good side, let's talk about how one wrestler's injury affected the other wrestlers. Uh, there was real sympathy in in the wrestling business uh, for injuries among the boys. Is that's what most wrestlers called the 
the guys that were wrestlers as well, they, they, they called each other the boys. You're one of the boys. Many of those guys visited you when you were hurting in the hospital. Guys in the crews would come and see you, man. And in the Florida Territory, as an example, Eddie Graham was a very good at helping financially when a guy got hurt. And I can remember time when the boys in that territory and mine as well, later on when I had my own businesses, would give money to injured guys and their families that needed it. And they, you know, they would just slip you some money. It was really, really a camaraderie thing. You know, we worked against each other every night in the ring, but we were all brothers outside the ring. We, it was a, it was a camaraderie among wrestlers that was pretty amazing. Yeah. The bookers were obviously affected by wrestler injuries. You not only appreciated the boys in your crew, but you were truly affected when one of them got unexpectedly hurt when you're a booker. You felt for his family, and you scrambled to temporarily replace him. You know, you had to had to get somebody to take his place. And losing wrestlers to injury obviously affected your job dramatically as a booker. Replacing stars wasn't easy, and it almost always led to smaller houses. Uh, you felt bad about that. You were responsible kind of for the crowds, and all of a sudden you're just not doing the business that you were, and guys are not making the money that they were making. Obviously, the smaller houses affects the owners of the territory as well. And helping guys that got hurt was not only the right thing to do, I felt like, as an owner, but it it actually gained respect for you from other wrestlers when they found out you were helping people. The word got around. So let's look at the injuries from a fan's perspective. Uh, back in the day of kayfabe, you know, there was more realism and there was a lot more respect for wrestlers from the fans. An injury like mine on that Sunday in 1976 was obviously serious. Fans could tell my injury is serious by the, just the amount of time that I, being spent in the ring with me by the Coliseum, first the Coliseum medical staff, and then the ambulance crew before I was finally removed from the ring. But when you're in there for 20 minutes, 15, 20 minutes, and they're working on you, the fans really know. And oddly enough, on that afternoon, very few people left that building. It was amazing. They they just stayed to see what was going to happen. And then uh, as I was being passed to the crowd, the upper level of Coliseum, it was pretty obvious how it affected the fans. Uh, because I was being passed along by the fans. Once I got into that second balcony area, they were just uh, handing me basically to rows uh, up above me. So they could get me into a level that they get get me out of the building. And I saw a lot of tears and a lot of eyes. I wasn't feeling too good myself, but I, I was really, really amazed at how much people were, were into what had happened. And, and I felt bad for the younger kids that were there that day that saw something like that and, and had to experience that at an early age. So it was just an unfortunate thing that happened, and it happened many times in, in not just wrestling, but in all kinds of sports. Wow. So I'd been very lucky since I started wrestling in 1970. I didn't receive my first serious injury until the fall of 1975, five years after I started. And that's when, when my clavicle was displaced, shoved out of my sternum. And I missed several months, but luckily I returned. I didn't have any long-term injuries, long-term effects. So uh, just over a year later, I got this three-day trip to the hospital and 47 days off again, this time with a neck problem. 
So again, I was lucky and I got to return to action on Thanksgiving night in 1976. And Thanksgiving was was an appropriately named holiday for me in 1976 in more ways than just being called Thanksgiving. It was a truly a Thanksgiving for me. You know, that's crazy because you don't realize how both good and bad things come from wrestling injuries. Another great today's training, Ryan. So, all right, where are we going now? Well, before we get to the card of October 22nd, 1976, I'd like to take a look at a wrestler that's fast becoming a new heel star in Southeastern. From the day he makes his TV debut, leaping from the top rope of the short TV ring and hitting the huge lights mounted in the ceiling, in the studio ceiling. All right. You just reminded me because I've seen this on YouTube. You said short ring. And I know you're talking about Ronnie Garvin and Ronnie Garvin actually hit the lights from a ring. Now, was that a short ring at the time? Because it was in the TV studio. Yeah. And that's good. You know, that, that you're asking about a, a short ring, what the short rings all about, because I don't think fans know what a short ring is all about and why would there be the difference in the, it's not just the, the difference in the height of some wrestling rings, right. but uh, they're also uh, smaller in size. So, you know, uh, the TV studio is obviously more compact. So you, the, the ring is a little smaller. Yeah. Yes, of course. So they were built that way, you know, to be for television stations, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, it's simply because the small size of the TV studio across the country, when wrestling TV shows started emanating out of TV studios, Owners had to resize their rings. You know, most rings used in arenas, obviously, were those big old 18 or 20-foot square rings for the simple reason they could be big because the buildings were large. They had plenty of floor space compared to TV studios. Right. So there's a significant difference in the size of wrestling ring. If you put a 20-foot ring next to a 16-foot ring, you'd be amazed how much bigger the 20 is than the 16-foot. You're not so, just talking the height of the ring. You're talking width as well. Yeah. The the, the square footage of it, uh, 16 right. feet or 16 feet square, 20 right. feet. It's, it's just four feet bigger, but it's way bigger once you see a 16-foot ring and a 20-foot ring sitting beside each other. So, you know, if you own the company and you're going to have a, you've got a studio and that studios, those studios weren't made big. They didn't have any reason to make the studios huge. So you didn't want to have a ring that's going to take up all your floor space in the studio. And if it did, it didn't allow for many fans to be seated around the ring. So the fans were much more important than the huge ring, (laughs) you know? So fans' reaction and noise that created the atmosphere that was necessary for great TV wrestling. Yeah, I bet if you put the big ring in the TV studio, you probably would not be able to get through a match. Or if you put the small ring in a big arena, it would just look silly. Yeah, yeah. You know, so when they started doing shows from television studios, uh, every wrestling company in the world had to go and cut their rings down. They didn't just cut the size down from, say, 20 feet to 16 feet. They also cut the bottoms of those ring posts off so that that ring wasn't really tall because uh, you had those television lights. Then you got those cameras, those low hanging lights are there on purpose to make the studio bright and to create that sharper and better TV picture. 
Yeah. So uh, the short and the small rings made TV wrestling powerful from the 1950s into the 1980s and even beyond. There were some so cool. pretty big companies that ran in studios even after the 1980s. So uh, I'm glad you stopped me on this. And we talked about this ring because, you know, that's what my goal is here. And, uh, and yours as well. We talked about it. We want to educate fans in every possible way. And uh, a lot of people would think, well, I never realized, but those, those rings were short, no studios. So uh, we'll go back. Uh, let's, let's go back to Ronnie Garvin again. Okay. So, exactly. That's where you started talking about in the beginning. I was going to say, he's probably what brought to your mind, at least the reason for the short ring in the TV studio. And as, as you recounted a couple of weeks ago, he leaped off the top rope and actually hit one of the lights with his elbow, his back or something as he jumped. Yeah. Yes. And, and this was a short ring. I mean, it, it was already a, it was low to the, the ground, uh, probably only maybe uh, two feet high off the floor. So, you know, he really exploded when he jumped uh, and he did that every time he did that move. So in the fall of 1976, we got a new star that's being born in Southeastern. I was blown away myself with how fast it was happening once Ronnie Garvin came in. From the day he made his debut, when he leaped off that top rope of the ring and he hit that light that was mounted to the studio ceiling up there, almost 20 feet off the floor from, you know, until that Sunday afternoon of October 10th when he sailed almost 10 feet higher than that. And I'm, I can verify that. I watched him leave the top rope, and he went probably 10 feet higher that night, and he dived like a darn eagle, man, and uh, drove his knee into my throat. Ronnie Garvin was flying high in Southeastern wow. in more ways than one, man. That's uh, crazy. Wow. <laughs> and he had always, to me, been a great worker, but he'd never been pushed to the top in territories. I don't think Ronnie got his due until he had his run in Southeastern. And I'd worked with him hundreds of times in Florida when I was young, and I just went there in 1970 and 71, and I often wondered why he wasn't a star there, you know? So when he came to Southeastern, I made up my mind to shove him. I wanted to see if he could prove to himself that he could be a main eventer every night. So we talked about what I wanted to do with him, and I could see in his eyes when we had conversations that uh, he wanted it as much as I did. and you know. He never had this opportunity, and he really, really wanted it badly. So only one thing was holding Ronnie Garvin back from being a star, and he was French-Canadian. He had a very strong French accent, and he had never done his own interviews. So to be a star in the sport, back in the day, you had to walk the walk and talk the talk, you know? And he could certainly walk the walk, but he never had been able to talk the talk because of his accent and his problem speaking English. So when he was partners with Terry Garvin for years, they were one of the greatest teams in the world. And uh, Terry's no relation to Ronnie, but Terry did all the interviews. He did all the talking. So Ronnie, when he came in, he needed a manager, and he needed him now. He needed somebody to speak for him, but he really needed to be able to speak for himself to get to where he needed to be in the sport. Now, Homer was his manager since the day he came into Southeastern. I never thought Homer was a good fit for Ronnie. Hmm. Ronnie had only been in Southeastern for three weeks. 
He had been the champion for two of those three weeks. He was doing a great job in the ring. So uh, Homer situation was at this point, he'd been to Knoxville for almost a year. He'd done a great job. He got tremendous heat. He worried about himself and I worried about his getting knifed or shot or no telling what, you know, because <laughs> he had all that heat. Wow. But it was time for him to leave. He'd been there for about a year. He had managed the Southeastern champion, Tor Tanaka. He'd managed the Southeastern tag champions, Norville Austin and Butch Malone. And he was going to be leaving on the Friday night card that we're about to talk about. And uh, Garvin needed another manager to do his talking for him. But do his talking only because his skills in the ring were without question. So I knew this was going to happen. I knew Homer was leaving. I knew I had to find Ronnie another manager. I hoped it wasn't going to be for long. I wanted to try to get Ronnie to start to do his own interviews. So I've been scrambling around since he had arrived, trying to find the right guy to manage Garvin. I found this guy the first week of October 1976. And I'd first met him in Florida, this guy, when he was a top heel there in 1972. He was six foot six. He weighed over 300 pounds. He had a long, black, bushy beard wow. and hair. He had a deep, old, gravelly voice. And uh, he had a heavy Texas accent. And that was just perfect because of all the heat that Terry had gotten recently being out <laughs> of Texas, you know. So uh, he was perfect. And he came at the perfect time. So Ronnie Garvin, the Southeastern champion, is going to be managed after Homer leaves by Big Bad John. Garvin's stock went up and so did Southeastern's when that happened. So it was amazing that it worked out like it did. Oh, no doubt about it. Big Bad John sounds like a monster, Ron. And he was the manager, you're saying. What else? Uh, uh, I mean, was there anything else going on? What, what, what else? Well, on that world title card. I knew that the Big Bad John was going to be coming in, but also there was something else that I had going on at the time. Let's jump into that, too. Uh, it involved my brother, you know, and, and he'd been gone for Southeastern since July 23rd of 76, and he lost to loser leave town match to Don Carson. Yeah. He went back to Nashville, where he worked quite a bit for Jerry Jarrett, on and off on the Memphis and the Nashville side of Tennessee. And uh, both Jimmy and I, after he'd been gone for about four months, we were missing him, you know, and Jimmy was talking to me about it. He said, we need to get Rob back, you know? So I figured out a way to do that. You know, I mean, he'd lost to lose or leave town. So I created that on the world championship show. I created that winner returns to Southeastern match in which I brought Don Carson back, who has already come back under the hood as Mr. Knoxville and Robert. Right. And uh, whoever won the match was going to be coming back to Southeastern. Whoever lost was going to have to be gone for at least a year as a wrestler. Both of those guys had lost, but only one of them was gone. So this match gave Rob the opportunity to legitimately return. So he won that match against Don Carson on the world title card. Now, the crazy part about this was the idea turned out to be a real blessing because I unexpectedly got hurt on that day. So if Rob couldn't have come back to wrestle, if I hadn't had that type of match, I wouldn't have had the opponent I needed. So before my injury, my plan was to come back 12 days later to Chilhowee Park against Ronnie Garvin after he had jumped off the top rope on me in the funk match. Right. But uh, 
When I had this match between Rob and Carson, it turned out that Rob was able to come back and wrestle. And that way, this angle that I'd worked on the big world title card that I was hoping would assure me a big house to follow that card and keep the territory's momentum growing, it worked because my brother could take my place. So it was my way as a booker preventing what happened to a lot of bookers after they had these big world title events that their business dropped off dramatically. And we were able to keep our momentum quite a bit because Rob was going to be available to slide into the spot that I was going to have. That's pretty cool. What was the card? What else did you have for Friday, October 22nd of 76? Well, the first match was another new baby face, a kid named Rip Smith. I don't know that a lot of people heard of him. He actually was one of the very best I had ever seen as a young guy. He really had it all. And uh, he was going to be in Southeastern for quite a while. And he was facing that night in his first match, uh, David Schultz. The second match was the former Southeastern champion, the Gladiator, Dick Steinborn, against uh, another newcomer, another babyface, Don Carnoodle. Third match was a strap match. Both men going to be hooked together, locked together, uh, strapped together with a 10-foot-long leather strap. Mm-hmm. This great Mephisto against Tor Tanaka. The fourth match was the second match of the night for Tanaka. This time, uh, no matter what happens in the leather strap match, he's got to come back and wrestle Homer O'Dell, and this time the loser's got to leave Southeastern. So the fifth match featured a return match. The new Southeastern Tag Champion, Jimmy Golden and Mike Stallings, won that Southeastern Tag Championship from Kurt and Carl Von Steiger, the first loss for the Von Steigers since they had come to Southeastern Wrestling. Uh, so the return matches on this 22nd card. And the main event was the special challenge after two things that happened on the NWA title day. Robert had won that winner, returns the Southeastern match against Carson, and Ronnie Garvin had injured me. So this turned out to be uh, six matches in all on that card. It was a strap match, a loser leaves match, a Southeastern tag title match, and a special challenge match. Man, that sounds like a great lineup. And this also sounds like a great time for a break. It's been a great show so far, and we're going to come back. This studcast will continue in a moment right here. We live in a world today like no other. Everything has changed. COVID-19 makes the new normal almost unbearable for those in any sport, but independent wrestling is being totally destroyed. Super Studcast number 34 paints a not very pretty picture of what trying to make a living in wrestling has come to at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Discover for yourself the difficulty presented to those who have made a career now struggling to survive. Hear from a wrestler, a promoter, and a trainer the cold, hard facts of a pandemic. Never has professional wrestling been so down as it is today. Find out why at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Three hours of reality, only $2.99. Super Studcast number 34 is an eye-opening experience. Don't miss it. Hey, we're back in another Studcast. David Summers here with the Tennessee Stud. Ron Fuller, the storyteller. And you can find it all at tnstud.com. That's tnstud.com. Every Studcast is right there, including last week's legendary, the big hitter, the one that has been heard the most 
It was absolutely amazing. The world title match part two. Don't miss it. If you did, you got to go back and check it out. It was more listened to than any other. Congratulations, Ron. That's quite a huge feat right there. So where are we headed to next? Well, we're going to talk about this historic TV on Saturday, October 16th, 1976. Anytime you're coming off a huge event, you're going to have a great wrestling program because back in those days, long, long before a lot of other companies were doing it, we were shooting a lot of video. And uh, so this TV is another very special one because it's going to be filled with video recorded before a record Coliseum crowd six days earlier. And for the fans that didn't attend these videos, it gave them an idea of what they had missed. And uh, that alone to me was a great promotional tool for Southeastern wrestling. When they saw this crowd, they're going to go, wow, look at this, man, this is big time stuff. And uh, so this show is going to contain four live matches as all TV shows did, but it's also going to have three video matches from that great card. Uh, It's going to have a taped interview with the NWA world champion, Terry Funk, and his henchman, Ronnie Garvin, that was shot immediately after Garvin finished the champ's dirty work on that Sunday afternoon record crowd. The opening still shot behind Les for this TV was truly spectacular. It was a shot of Ronnie Garvin, high in the air. His legs were tucked underneath him. And he was about to land on my throat. Uh, Robert was sitting with Les at the set. And uh, obviously, the show opened up with a tight shot on Les. And he's the only person on the screen. And he covers what's going to be on this tremendous show that day. And as the cameras backed off, the studio audience, the people at home, they could see that fantastic shot on that giant set behind Les and Rob. Uh, It was a steel shot. And he was, gosh. It was amazing. Uh, you know, the TV audience was just shocked. I mean, uh, when they saw what it looked like. Uh, to me, laying in the ring and watching him climb up on that top rope and jump, it looked like he was 25 feet in the air. It was like, wow, he's going to kill me. <laughs> you know, this is going to kill me. So the TV audience, you know, they were shocked and they responded about it. And I'm sure everybody at home that missed that event probably was even more shocked to see that shot. Uh, Terry Funk was in my fuller leg lock. Both of us were on our backs and Garvin was soaring like a bird, man, and coming in for the kill. So it was the best way ever to begin a show. I mean, Les greeted Robert. He thanked him for being there. He welcomed him back to Southeastern because he had won the match that allowed him to come back to Southeast. And then he had the director play the video. They were holding it. Uh, obviously. So when it started playing the video, they played it in slow motion and it showed from where Ronnie was probably 20 feet, at least in the air, him coming down in slow motion, sailing through the air. It showed the thousands of fans in the grandstand behind him. That was just an awesome part of it. And then it showed his knee sinking into my neck, all this in slow motion, really slow motion. And my head slamming violently into the mat. Wow. That's that's when I got knocked out. And then they backed up the tape. And Les and Rob watched the last five minutes of this NWA world title match between Terry Funk and myself. And it showed Terry putting a spinning toe hold on me. It showed me kicking him 
in the face and him going back into the first referee and that referee going out on the floor. And it showed the entire controversial finish of one of the most exciting matches in the long history of Knoxville wrestling. And Knoxville did have a long history of matches way back into the 30s. My grandfather and Herb and, and uh, you know, a lot of my family members had been wrestling there for 40, 50 years. So yeah. it continued from me being handed the belt uh, and then having it taken away and then putting my hold on the champion and then being jumped off, off the top rope uh, on by Garvin. And it even showed me being passed through the crowd on a stretcher and it showed me loading me into the ambulance on the outside of the building on the big courtyard area out back of that Coliseum. So it was definitely one of the most awesome videos that we'd ever shown on Southeastern. Robert went straight to the ring after it was over and he really, he was upset. (laughs) You're watching that, uh, you know, it got him fired up and he went in and he took care of business with his opponent. It only lasted about three minutes. The tone was set for a great TV. That's what happened. Yeah. Jimmy Golden, Mike Stallings, the new Southeastern champions were live on TV with their belts in the second match. And the, the fans celebrated with them that win over the Von Steiger brothers. They went to the set with Les. And they watched a great win. And uh, before the huge crowd, again, we moved the cameras during these uh, videos. So that we got different shots of the building and everywhere you went in that Coliseum, it was packed. So, you know, they had a different shot in the background for all this. And uh, so the opening downer of the TV show with me getting hurt kind of changed around. Uh, Jimmy and them get the big win and the video shows it. And, and then along comes Kurt and Carl Von Steiger are going to make the second interview. Mm-hmm. And obviously they were upset. They hadn't been beat before since they'd come to Southeastern. And uh, they were very sad about uh, what they call gloating. They said these two young Yanks <laughs> are just got it out here making fun of us, basically. And, uh, and they, you know, I had had a good time watching that video, I bet. So, so they uh, promised they were going to display their superiority over all Americans and humiliate and retake their championships <laughs> and next Friday night and then leave those two young Yanks laying there. Personality profile was another great one. Let's watch the video with Ronnie Garvin and Homer O'Dell of the celebration in Terry Funk's dressing room after the Knoxville Coliseum match in which I got injured. It was done in uh, this personality profile in Studio B, but it was right there in front of the live TV audience as well. And uh, boy, the TV audience was very angry about what had happened. And, uh, And they screamed and hollered and made so much noise, you could hardly hear what Homer was saying. Uh, they didn't want to hear what he had to say. Terry Funk and Garvin were both still sweating in this video, especially Funk. I mean, we'd been wrestling for almost an hour, and Garvin had been down there and had to fight his way to get to the ring. Then they both had to fight their way back to the dressing room. On the video, Terry Funk, he handed Homer five $1,000 bills. Wow. <laughs> yeah. You know, he was prepared, you know, so. And, you know, I don't know if people seen $1,000 bills, but, but uh, I've seen a few of those. And obviously the camera made, we got really close. And, well, and I was going to ask. So these were, re- I have seen one before, but these were real bills. And they were probably a little more common that, that far back, though. Yeah. 
Yeah, back back in those days, I think maybe they probably were. Yeah. But uh, you know, they they obviously that you could see that these were real thousand dollar bills. He gave yeah. five of them. He counted them out. And uh, Ronnie Garvin, it still never said anything on the TV, but he spoke very loudly in this little video. And he mm-hmm. reached over and he took the money away from Homer. <laughs> 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 I mean, he just said, "Give me that." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. So uh, Funk bragged, obviously, about coming out of the ring with his belt and how happy he was to leave this hillbilly town and this rotten part of the country. And he just tore into him again. He couldn't help it on his way out. And he promised them in the end, he says, I'll never come back again. I promise y'all of you. Brad invested. (laughs) So it was the only thing he said in the interview that the fans cheered. (laughs) <laughs> when he said, I'll never come back. I promise it. <laughs> so, uh, and uh, boy, Terry had made a tremendous impression upon Southeastern wrestling in his first appearance there, man. Um, his mm. heat was just truly immense in that match. And it was even hotter after what happened in the end of it. But he is going to come back many times because I want him back. He's a tremendous worker and he had great heat there. And uh, every time he came back, they hated him just as much or maybe more. <laughs> no, it never got better for Terry. It would just get worse. So at the end of the profile, Garvin spoke his first words ever on the Southeastern TV show. And uh, in his heavy French Canadian accent, he said he was basically, he said something about it. he was very happy to have hurt Ron Fuller. He said, you know, I've hated him for a long time. He got out a few words, and you could uh, kind of understand what he was. And then, he, and then he said, "And I look forward to hurting his brother soon, because <laughs> he's wrestling Rob six days later." Yep. You know, yep. so he says, I'm, "I'm ready to hurt your brother soon too." And uh, and then he took the thousand dollar bills out of his pocket, and he smiled really big, and he looked in the camera, and he said, uh, "Thank you, Terry, but I would have done it for nothing, just for the fun of it." <laughs> back then back then five thousand dollars that was a new car or a half of a really nice car oh heck yeah i had bought a brand new cadillac that was going to be in the tournament uh, three months down the road given away in three or four months down the road for six thousand so dollars right, right. you could buy yourself a brand new cadillac for that yeah. kind of money oh yeah so the third live match was the new fan favorite of Southeastern, man, and that was Tora Tanaka. I mean, since this guy had turned babyface, he was mobbed in every building we went in on his way to and from the ring. I mean, fans were absolutely crazy about the huge Jap, you know, and uh, and he got the same reaction from Americans as Americans got from Japanese when they wrestled in Japan. I remember going to Japan and, uh, you know, the Japanese would want to get crowd around you. They just wanted to touch you. Then the Americans did the same thing to Tanaka. They would just mob him when he came out of the dressing room. And it would be a mob that would go to the ring. And when he came out of the ring and came back to the dressing room, everybody just wanted to touch him. He was truly something special, man. And uh, Tanaka knew how to work the fans. Uh, you know, he always had a smiling face after he became a baby face rather than that scowl he used to wear all the time when he was managed by Homer. It was amazing to see what a star he was as a baby face. So he won his match with his new finisher. He wrestled right there on TV that day. And he started using the sleeper hole. 
And uh, then smiling after he won the match and he woke the dude up, he smiled and he bowed at all three sections of the studio audience. And they <laughs> loved it, you know, <laughs> the old Japanese tradition. And yeah. uh, the great Mephisto came along right after that match, took the next interview. He was already had the leather strap hooked to his wrist. And he started talking about how humiliating it was for him to be tethered, I believe was the word, <laughs> as I can remember it, to yeah. a Japanese infidel. But it presented him a great opportunity to burn the flesh of a fish eater. I remember <laughs> to call him a fish eater. <laughs> I said, wow, where did he come up with that from? You know, so that yeah. so was the guess. I, I guess that was his name for Orientals. And uh, yeah. so. so at the end of his interview, Homer came out at the end of the interview, and he told Mephisto how pleased he was that Tanaka had to wrestle Mephisto right before he had to wrestle him in the Loser Leaf Southeastern match. And, you know, then he started putting Mephisto over, and he put his arm around him. Mephisto shrugged him off like, get off of me. You know, and he said something about, you know, I was expecting the great Arab that you're going to leave Tanaka all burned up and defeated. <laughs> Then I can easily pin him and and I can send him packing, man. To a knock, I'll be gone. And oh boy, fans hated that interview. They didn't like both of those guys. Studio erupted in booze for the last person to come out was Ronnie Garvin. Came out for the last live match of the show. He was by himself. No homer. It was the most brutal yet of any of the matches I had seen him have on TV. And he... He put the boy in the middle of the ring, and again, he hit the lights on the roof and uh, came down with that, which was now becoming an infamous knee drop. Wow. And, uh, and again, another opponent got carried out of the ring as Rob arrived at the set with Les to watch his win over Don Carson from the Coliseum. Uh, they were carrying out Garvin's opponent. So Carvin, obviously, Carson was gone from Southeastern for a year. He could not wrestle in Southeastern for a year. And so Rob stayed with Les for the last interview of the show. And he, you know, he watched that match, how he won over Carson. And then uh, and Les, you know, said that it was really great to have him back. And especially under the circumstances of me being hurt. So Rob was very honest in his interview about the danger of wrestling against a guy like Ronnie Garvin. But he was determined. He wanted mm -hmm. to do for me the same thing Garvin did for Funk, basically. He talked about my days in the hospital, mm. which I had been in the hospital for the three days after this happened to me, and about the fact that at this point, I really didn't know whether I was going to be able to wrestle again. They always tell you, doctors and people in the hospital, that this is it. You can't mm. go back in the ring. But uh, so many wrestlers never listen to that. And then he talked about how our family had always made a living in the ring and had a reputation for getting even. And that was what he was going to do the following Friday night. That sounds like another awesome TV show. So what happens in Chilhowee Park the next Friday night? So Rip Smith, the new kid, wow, he had a great match with uh, David Schultz. And he got a win over David Schultz his very first night in. Wow. Uh, this guy, what happens with him? I don't know. When he disappeared, I thought he was going to become one of the major wrestlers in the country. And something happened. I never had any contact with him after he finally left Southeastern. But he was one of the most promising young guys I've ever seen. The gladiator Dick Steinborn had a tremendous baby face. Time limit draw with Don Carnoodle. 
Uh, fans loved this match. And it was one of the first that the Gladiator would be having with all these young baby faces now that's in the crew. You got the Don Canoodle, you got Rip Smith, you've got these young baby faces. And I like to put the Gladiator in there with those boys because they had great, great clean matches, baby face matches. And then, unlike what Homer had been hoping for from the great Mephisto, uh, to leave Tanaka just laying there and dead, basically. Tanaka was was not left laying as he'd asked for Mephisto to do for him. So he was far from dead. In fact, he beat Mephisto. And then Homer, <laughs> within a few minutes to the fans' delight, and uh, Homer lost his last match in Southeastern Wrestling history, and he disappeared from Knoxville. He never came back to Knoxville. Wow. Jimmy Golden and Mike Stallings, they successfully defended their Newly won Southeastern Tag Championships against the Von Steiger brothers. A great match. Wow, those two teams really had phenomenal matches. And in the main event, the fans got another huge surprise from a Garvin match. Uh, Homer had just lost the loser-leave match, and he didn't even come down to the ringside with Ronnie Garvin. Uh, you know, he's done, basically. Why would he go down there with him? You know, so Robert did great. He really took the fight to Garvin, and uh, he really had to if he's going to have any chance of beating Ronnie. And he had that match won, when, and the referee collided with Robin and went out of the ring onto the floor. And then out of nowhere comes this big, huge Texan, <laughs> Big Bad John. <laughs> and no one at this point even knew of his existence. They'd never seen him before. He came down to the ring. He was wearing a big black hat. Uh, Rob's laying there about trying to get up, but Garvin is still down. And in the ring goes Big Bad John, and he he grabs Rob, and he puts him in a reverse hangman hole. I mean, it's a very painful hole. And he held him until Rob Rob didn't. He couldn't fight it anymore, and he dropped him. And then he just put his hat back on. He left the ring, and the referee's still on the outside, and he was gone. <laughs> Garvin got up, and he got Rob up, and then suplexed him in the middle of the ring, and it was time to fly again. And so he went up on the top, and he buried that knee in poor Rob's throat, too. The fans were shocked at what they'd just seen. They had no idea what to expect next. Man, I'm guessing, uh, the, you, obviously, you had the fans really wondering what the heck was going on. They'd never seen this big guy before. You are hurt. Robert's hurt. And now the man in the black hat, who's six feet six, comes out to help Garvin. I can't wait to see where we're headed for after this. All right. In the meantime, I think we'll get that cold drink and we'll have a seat under the learning tree, Ron. Who sent the question for this one? And what was the question? Uh, the questions uh, for this learning tree, like I said, I think earlier in the opening came from a gentleman named Fred Edelman. He asked two questions about the Terry Funk title match. Uh, he said, he asked, did the NWA send referees for the title match or were the referees involved in the match yours, meaning Southeastern, my referees, right. and how much say did champions have in the finish? He wanted to know the answer to that. So let's start with that referee part. Uh, no, no, Mr. Edelman, the, the NWA didn't provide referees. They didn't send referees. They were only responsible for getting the champion and his belt there for you. And you had to do everything else. You decided how many referees you wanted. 
I like to have the two referees for world championship matches because it made sense. Uh, yeah. So the referees that afternoon were all mine. And on this event, because it was a big event, I had three referees that day. Mac, my head referee, was there, and he worked some of the matches, a couple of them, but he wasn't involved at all in the championship match. And I wanted it that way because I knew there was going to be a lot of heat in that match, and I didn't want to put any extra heat on my full-time referee. You don't want fans hating your referee, you know, so... I picked uh, David Murphy and Tommy Weathers, the other two, to get involved and do the dirty work in this match uh, and then changing the title and uh, giving the belt back to Funk and the whole deal. So uh, the second question was, uh, how much say in the finish did the champion have? Well, uh, having never been the champion, uh, the world champion at least, I'm not sure what rules or limits were discussed when they made you champion. Obviously, there had to be some limits, or the integrity of the title would be in question a hell of a lot of matches, no doubt. So you also wouldn't want to have riots like we did that day at every title match either. So I thought this finish pushed the envelope about as far as you could go. As an owner, you had to protect your baby face. It was always bad uh, because your baby face wrestled against these heel champions and they never won. And and your people didn't never get to see a title change in your territory, and it became even worse when you used the same baby face too often, and he just never won. You were risk killing your popularity of your star because he wasn't able to beat the man. Mm. So every champion I ever worked with would always ask what you wanted to do uh, when you came when the world champion showed up. Uh, they never offered ideas unless they had to, you know. Uh, and I'm sure they went into territories where guys go, well, I don't know, what, what do you suggest? You know, but I, I didn't like to do it that way. And it was my territory's moment. Um, you know, when you got your world champion there, and those champions didn't want to be responsible for figuring you're finished. <laughs> they, they wanted you to tell them what you want to do. So there was only my third NWA world title match as an owner at this point. I'd wrestled uh, Jack Briscoe. Ron Wright had wrestled Jack Briscoe. And now I had wrestled Terry Funk. So it's only my third title match as an owner. And during my career as an owner and a member of the NWA, I probably had more than 30 title defenses in my territories. I worked with Terry in this one to come up with something different. Uh, we sat and talked about it, and uh, and and we kind of came up with this one ourselves. And as the years went by, I always had my own ideas, and I usually always knew what I wanted to do with the world champion long before we ever got there. So by the time I was ready to retire, champions came in eager to see what I had in mind, <laughs> and, and they usually took a lot of those finishes to other territories too. They didn't want to tell you what to do, but if you were really stuck, they're going to dig down and, and remember things that, like this finish was, that really, really popped the crowd many, many times and uh, turned out to be a tremendous historic match. That's cool. And uh, I'd like to thank Mr. Edelman. You know, thank you, Mr. Edelman, for, for your questions, obviously. And, uh, and I always look forward to the next learning tree.
I can certainly relate to the question when, in college football. When you see the SEC championship game, you may have ACC referees or the national championship game. They, they, they're going to come from another conference. So a, a really good job on the question. All right, you've done it again. Another great one, Stud. If you want to be friends with a legend, you can go to Facebook and like the Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud page. And there you have it. Friends with a legend, just like that. You can also find all about Ron's great novel, Brutus, by liking his author, Ron Fuller Welch page. Brutus lives there, and it's a great place to find more about this fascinating story. On Twitter, you can find him at Ron Fuller Welch. Super Studcast number 34 is really being enjoyed by fans. Part one takes you behind COVID-19's destruction of wrestling. Would you like to say something about that one, Ron? Yeah, I would. Uh, the response has been tremendous to it, and the people that have listened to it have all really, really enjoyed it. Part two is going to have different people. In part one, we're going to talk to an independent promoter, independent trainer, and an independent wrestler, just to get an idea of how COVID has affected wrestling, which it is just really basically destroying it. And, uh, you know, in part two, we're going to get another three that we're going to be talking to and get different perspective there, too. I'm really uh, happy with this Super Studcast. I think it's really a good one. And for fans that want to get the inside scoop on something that's really happening today, this is a good one for that. You can find it at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. And another reminder about last week's episode, it was a record-breaking episode number 169. And this was the World Championship match part two, and it was a record Breaker, congratulations again. You can find that one, too, at tnstud.com, episode number 169. All right, so where are we headed next week, Ron? Well, we got, obviously, another today's training. We're going to continue with this process of educating our fans, our great fans, man. And then we're going to be heading into the last Knoxville event in October of 1976. It's that time of year when wrestlers start making moves. From one territory to another, it seems like at the end of the year, it just happens in every territory. So we're going to be discussing some wrestlers that are leaving because they want to and uh, some because they need to. Uh, and we're going to be talking about some of the incoming names that are arriving in the next couple of months that are going to take Southeastern to the next level. We're really going to have a tremendous year in 77. We're also going to talk about a big decision for Southeastern Wrestling that was made in October concerning having events in West Virginia. Uh, we're going to have another learning tree, uh, and they'll give me more opportunity, obviously, to teach fans about old school days, what it was all about. And uh, I want to thank everybody like you have uh, several times here, Dave, uh, for joining us, for breaking records, uh, for for being so interested and for all the great comments that people have had uh, and sent to me. Uh, I just really, really appreciate it. And I thank you all for listening. And, uh, and, uh, and obviously, there's a lot of new listeners listening, too. And thank you all for joining us. And uh, thank you for riding with us. And uh, please take care of yourselves and others. And may God bless us all. God bless you, too, Stud. This is David Summers thanking you and reminding you that Ron Fuller Studcast 
is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.